Hi everyone, it's Allison and Anne Maisel Mavens, episode two, season two of the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, entitled Midway to Midtown. We are thrilled that we have so many of you writing in, following us on Instagram, and leaving your comments about what you want to hear about. This season is big for us because we are counting down for the third season, which starts in December. So we are really looking forward to working our way through this season, getting feedback, uh, and then watching the third season with all of you in real time and in real time podcasting so we don't have to wait. And in this episode, there's a lot of overarching themes that we think are going on, and one of them is location. We have the Weissmans, well, some of them, in Paris. We have Susie now relocated to the Weissman apartment in Manhattan. And we have Joel Maisel trying to buy Midge an apartment and move her to a new location. But Joel is still in the same location with Joel his parents. Joel is still in the same location. Joel is still with his parents, and he's also at the same time trying to save his parents. However, he did change his job, so it's a different uh, location. Yes, but his family has been in the same garment district location, it seems, for years. And he is in with his parents' apartment. He's in his parents' apartment, so he's trying to save them. And at the same time... Abe's trying to save Rose in his mind. He's trying to get them out. And Rose, who's big into art and walking around Paris and being infatuated by the culture, she shows us a sculpture of people that were trying to be saved. That's true. She the sculpture was the the six men from Calais. They were burghers. They were very wealthy men in the city that was under siege. In the Middle Ages? In the Middle Ages, I believe in the 1200s, 1300s, and the English captured the city, and basically they wanted to punish the city. And they asked for one man, but six men came together because they didn't want this one man to go alone, and they put them with ropes, and they were going to hang them. Wow, and the you know, and they went together all together because they wanted to save the city. But the interesting part about the story, as I read, that the English queen spared their lives because she didn't want this to be on her baby's head. She was pregnant, and she was superstitious that this type of scenario would affect the baby. A curse. A curse. Did that child live long after? She was able to uh, give birth to the baby, but the baby died within a year's time. But that could have happened any... Well, back then, especially, right? Yes. So, I mean, but for her to think that, speak, the sins of the father is passed down to the next generation, um, and for her to think like that... uh, Very superstitious. Yes, and also thinking about energy. Again, the fact that... She didn't want that to be on her hands uh, to uh, to kill these men because these men did the right thing. They wanted to save their city. So, so they lived. They lived. I wonder why Amy Sherman Palladino picked that sculpture because when people think of Paris, they often think of the great painters and the famous paintings that hang up there, not hang up there, but are located there. I don't think, at least my generation. I don't know why she. They actually picked that. Picked that. I I know that some of the these 
the bronze that he started to work the on, the casting, was actually, it's in New York City at the Brooklyn Museum. And that's where I saw it. And when I saw it there, it was very profound. So I can just imagine what the real sculpture is when it's in Paris. And it just shows humanity because you can see the suffering on these men. And then also Rose was talking about the hands, how big the hands were. And, you know, it was symbolic. You know, you open a hand to help people, uh, hands do things. So one day I'll ask Amy uh, what she means one by one day. Soon, I hope, Amy. Contact us. Well, it's pretty incredible that they filmed in Paris then. Yes, it's incredible they filmed in Paris. I mean, it was a, Paris is a beautiful city. How many times have you been there now? I believe about three times, four times. The last time I went with your father, uh, right before 9-11, Oh, wow. And we had the we we actually visited the same scenes uh, as they shown in this episode, and you danced uh, on a bridge with Dad. No, I didn't dance on the bridge with Dad. Actually, they danced underneath the bridge uh, in this episode. But Paris is romantic. We had the picnic scene with the bread and the cheese. Um, and you experienced all that too. Yes, anything, uh, any the Parisian food is always delicious, uh, and it was. It really is a beautiful, beautiful city. Everywhere you go, uh, people are hugging and kissing each other. I don't know what it's like now, but back then it was a very romantic city. And Abe's trying to save Rose. He, in his mind, feels they have to get back to New York. And Rose feels if they stay in Paris, she's safe. She well, can be what she wants to be. She can be because there's no judgment. She feels that... She can do her artwork. She can have a dog, which have a she dog. would never have Yes, had which I think is very funny. And uh, she had things, she was able to do things more freely. This is all happening in Paris. And Susie is at the Weissman's apartment in Manhattan. And Midge is trying to save Susie. So much so, she leaves her rules about what she can and cannot do in this apartment. And we're just going to play that scene very quickly. Morning. I'm so happy you agreed to stay here while my parents are gone. I really believe if Harry Drake's goons can't find you, they may just forget about you. Anyhow, some rules you need to follow. Rule number one, no eating in the living room. Rule number two, touch nothing pink. Rule number three, rule number 38, do not touch Papa's robe. And as you can see from that, it's not just trying to hide Susie in the apartment. She's trying to control Susie. That's Midge. Midge, Midge is always trying to control the situation and make everything perfect or better, which that doesn't happen in life. No, that's never how the universe plays itself out. Yeah. And I like Susie. Susie made herself truly comfortable in the Weissman's apartment. Well, no one's around. The only people that seem to be around are Zelda... And then, uh, as so many fans have pointed out, Ethan and Esther are alone. Well, there was Zelda. Zelda is a good surrogate mother. What can I say? I guess. It's just a little... Well, she actually became a surrogate mother for Susie because she, uh, in the apartment, she was making dinner for Susie and sandwiches for Susie. Zelda was saving Susie? Susie. From Mitch. From Mitch, that's right. Susie was actually, Zelda was writing also notes for Susie. Eat this and don't eat that in the refrigerator. But uh, my favorite, well, there's several parts that I enjoyed. I enjoyed the part where she actually went into the library and played Abe's piano, and it showed that she was a classical pianist. 
And then she didn't like the musical note and she started tuning it to make it, uh, you know, make it uh, the, a proper uh, note for the piano and for the piece. She tuned the piano. She tuned the piano. Which is interesting to us because we don't know anything really about Susie's background. Yes. Besides now we know she's from the Rockaways. She has an uncle that no one knows how he disappeared. And now we also know she is a pianist. A very good one, too. A very good one, because who knows how to tune a piano? Doesn't well, it's that not take even, effort? Well, it's, no. Well, yes, there are special tools and people to tune the piano. However, she, the way she played the, uh, the piano, I mean, that was, a, that was no easy feat. So. Well, I want to know which one of the Weissmans plays the piano. Hey. He does? Yes, because actually that's what she says in Paris. We can put your piano here. Oh, that's right. Yes, I forget so he, that he, he's, yes, he uh, plays the piano. I guess the family is creative. Midge must get her stage presence from Abe. I don't think so. No, <laughs> no I don't think Probably from Ethan, um, the that child. That was a reach. That was a <laughs> yeah, reach for me. Probably from the baby. <laughs> well, no, bad joke. But but the point of it is... it. I always say, Susie, uh, for a better metaphor, is like a lemon. Every time a different episode comes, it's like something's peeled away, another layer. And You can't it, peel a lemon. Excuse me, not a lemon onion. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, go, no, don't have to apologize. But, no, what I'm saying is it's, it's, she's a fascinating creature to me because I find Susie so interesting because every time we see her, she reveals something more different about her. And she's very intelligent, very funny. And even in this episode, we also later on see her with Ethan, the child, showing uh, friendship. And who would think that Susie would show so much friendship with a, with a kid? Well, she bonds with Ethan really well. And, and she bonds with Zelda. It seems when Midge is not around, Susie is showing maybe not emotion, but a true essence of who she is. Season one, we didn't know her background at all. She even joked about her family. Now, in two episodes, we know she's a rockaway girl. She has a family. Well, we knew she came from a dysfunctional family because she said it in, in the first season she, about her family she joked about uh, it and when midge asked she wouldn't say if it was true or not she was like no i'm joking around i'm kidding now in season two when nobody is listening she plays the piano so well she plays the piano and uh she took a bubble bath i like how she, she took, took a, a bubble bath actually imogene shows up oh yes imogene shows up imogene even knows about this rule don't touch rose's soap it seems everyone in this family knows not to touch the soap including friends well everybody knows not to touch certain things in that house that's why i can relate to susie because i would be susie became very comfortable in that household and i would do the same this thing. apartment seems like a museum not a house yes there's so many rules well, you can disregard the rules, you know, just to make sense. She did. I know, and, and it I can seems relate. Ethan disregards the rules too. Susie's up late watching TV. Ethan's there too. Well, Ethan walks in and sits down, and he's watching the comedians late at night. Maybe he's uh, starting future to star. Future star. I didn't think about that. I guess he's going to be uh, on stage as well. Probably. Maybe that's foreshadowing. It could be. We got to get ask Amy. We got to ask Amy. Or Amy has to come here and ask us. That's right. These questions. That's right. Uh, yeah. 
Susie is left to her own devices, and with that, we see a totally different side. But at the same time, we see this non-conforming to the rules, I'm going to do what I want. Uh, and it's very comical to see her and Imogen meet. It's Midge's friend from her past life. So Who's perfect. Speak. Perfect, beautiful. Uh, and Susie is messy in a bathtub with all this going on. It's two worlds that clearly yeah, don't mesh well. What was more, uh, uh, again, a funny scene, but really not, because when Midge came in and reprimanded her for you know doing this bathtub scene with the bubbles and everything and demands her to get up, and she says, no, I'm not getting up in front of you because you're a perfect 18 and a half. Uh, it also shows that uh, she, as as much as she's bold and brave, she is not going to show or reveal her body in front of someone. I think it also shows that as women, even if we might show we are strong and we don't have insecurities, because Susie's always a person, I think, a pillar of strength, that we all sometimes have a lack of, not self-confidence, but of... Uh, you don't want to reveal your body. Well, I don't think it's, maybe it's that, we have to ask Amy, but I think she views Midge as this picture-perfect, cookie-cutter, uh, she is woman of she the is. 1950s, she is. I think it's, we talked about how it's funny because Susie, throughout the first season, doesn't care, doesn't care. She just says, you know, I don't want my life to be insignificant, right? So bold and incredible to hear. And then in the bathroom, she so, shows vulnerability saying, well, I'm not going to reveal myself so. in front of you because you're this perfect person. And then... And uh, she made Mitch get out. She made Mitch get out. Uh, and she shows that maybe she has some insecurities or maybe not insecurities, but she doesn't have to reveal herself well. fully. Uh, but I, I think it shows that we don't really know a lot about Susie and Amy and Dan uh, are doing an incredible job, the Paladinos, of revealing Susie layer slowly, by layer slowly. slowly in each episode. Now, the other thing which I think is interesting that we didn't talk about is we're talking about the Paladinos. One of the gangsters, the henchmen from the first episode, his last name is Paladino. He's a brother, I think, of Dan Palladino. Again, we have we to should get him on the show. show. Yes. If we can't get Amy, we're gonna do a family geography and map it out. You heard it here, folks. Uh, so it's incredible to see these two worlds collide, and it also, I think, shows that Mitch can't hide who she is because people are gonna find out. Even when she thinks people have no reason to find well, that's out. A, she was busy working, and one of the girls came over to her and asked her if she, if she knew Mrs. Maisel, because that was her name. And she said to Midge, this can't be you, because you basically would be fired. And that's probably foreshadowing was, you know, what might happen. At the same time, all this saving is going on. Joel then tries to save Midge, because he couldn't save the man. The big scene of this episode that has been requoted, made into Instagram posts and Facebook uh, shares is Midge goes to a comedy club, which is not the comedy club, the Gaslight downtown. No, it's uptown. Uptown. She Midtown. Moves Midtown. She's finally set to perform. 
Long story, short story, these male com comics make fun of her. The owner of the club boots her from, what was it, the third slot? She had different slots, and because she was a Every female, time. they kept uh, switching her to a, to a, a later slot until it was like 12 o'clock at night. It's her time to go on. Susie has to man the spotlight, which is awesome. We could do a whole metaphor how Susie makes sure that Midge is in the spotlight. And Midge goes on, and being Midge, and I think women watching this were really cheering. She lets the male comics have it. Yes, Susie because moves, they, were, they wanted to see her fail. They wanted to see her fail. Susie moves the spotlight on them, which shows their patronizing and puts them uh, out in public for people to see. And Midge goes on and on and on. Basically, you're making fun of me. Look at yourself. What's going on? And the quote that she says that everyone has been referencing is she talks about how uh, women and comedy and oppression and when it comes to can you pause this so I can look it up or are you just going to keep Put myself? I well, don't need you to tell me what to do yes that's very Midge these days so I guess when Joel fails with Midge she figures he'll go try to save his parents you see the garment district in full effect Moish and Joel having a back and forth about how business is run how to run the books Joel, no, they called the Mrs. Moskowitz. Mrs. Moskowitz. To look at the books. And we learned that there's a lot of things going on with the books, meaning that no one seems to know what's going on with the books. It's very much apparent that Joel has been kept out of business. Well, it wasn't his business. That's why he was kept out of business. It's a family business, though. You it, would think that... He was that... not part of the family business. He was working... No, it was. he was not part... He decided to be part of the family business when he walked out of his job, but it was not a family business. Uh, yes, and now it is a family now business. Now it is because... He's involved. He's involved, and they, the father and him involved into a, a family business Shirley's together. involved in well, uh, well, as Shirley well. Shirley was always involved. Shirley's basically telling Mr. Moskowitz, you know, bug off, so to speak. Yes. And there's a great scene when they're going over the books, which I'll play now. It's awesome. <laughs> And then there's another book, and then there was another book. Uh, there was a book that Mrs. Moskowitz found in the wall, and that was a book that they used to make loans to to people of ill repute, so to speak. That was very professional of you to say ill repute. What are you really meaning when you say that? People who uh, would lend you money at a high rate, and you had to pay it back at a certain time. If not, uh, something would happen to your business. So Moish is dealing with gangsters? Is that the underlining Well, they story? never said gangsters, but that's what I interpret from the scene. That's our interpretation. Yes. Also, Joel seems to want to fire the whole staff or give them all coffee or yes, he just I doesn't that know was how funny. to manage people. Well, yes, he does. He feels that the hard people who are hardworking should have coffee. It was a big thing back then to give people coffee breaks. So he put up coffee. His mother enjoyed the coffee. But the other part to it is what he didn't realize when he wanted to fire everybody was everyone was related to uh, each other. So it's going to fire this man called Manny. Uh, he was related to one of the seamstresses who was the best thing. These were good workers. And back then, uh, what I think is going on is that 
Moish hires qualified people to do his work. He hires a seamstress. He hires someone that does embroidery. He hires someone that um, cuts a fitter. So he hires these people, but these people have husbands that come with it or wives that come with them. And he wants his workers to be happy. He wanted to save money, so he decided that you should fire people who didn't work. It's not about who didn't work. Joel sees people smoking in the halls. He doesn't seem to know what everyone's role is. As an outsider, he's not an inside family member to all of this. He now comes into the family business. He's made assumptions about who does what, what's important. And it seems that from my perspective, and this is where we've gotten into a back and forth about what's going on, I feel that Moish has taken it upon himself to hire couples, to make sure people have jobs, and you think I'm wrong. I think you're wrong. <laughs> what do you think is going on? Hard to believe that Moshe wants his people to be happy because he always comes off being a gruff type of man. Kevin Pollack, we adore you, the actor who plays Moish, come on the podcast, go on. But <laughs> I feel that when a, a person comes into an office and they have to worry about money or their spouse and what they're doing, they can't do a good job. They're not focused. You're saying back then when jobs were probably limited in terms of what people can do. Especially with women. I mean, a lot of them uh, in the garment business, there a lot of them were women, and this is how they made their money. So bringing in the families of workers, Moish is making sure everyone feels good and is provided for. That's right. But Joel sees it more as what is going on. There's because he's young, he doesn't understand uh, the family well, you know, dynamics. Us younger generational. Well, it's not that he was young. He didn't understand the family dynamics, and that, yeah, maybe somebody didn't pull their weight, but the other part of the of the couple did. So you got two together, one that did something and one that didn't do something. But that's the way life was. Back I then. think that's as confusing that statement as. Uh, Shirley Maisel's bookkeeping, what you just said. Well, there we go. We're similar. <laughs> it worked. People were happy. If you didn't want to worry about your spouse and you knew where they were, they probably took coffee breaks together or they went to lunch. And who's to say, maybe these people who didn't seem like they were working, inadvertently they might have been because um, the the. The father might have had them do other things that you don't Moish. even know about. Moish, you, you don't know. I mean, he's another person that keeps, we keep finding out certain things that he does and doesn't do. I think it's very loving how angry she get, he gets at Joel because I think the bottom line is he wants more for his son and wants his son out of the garment business. That's true. A lot There's of parents felt that way. With the garment industry, so many of my friends and relatives as well. Uh, grew up in that business, but a lot of them wanted their children to go to higher education, to college, university. Well, Joe did and graduate Joel college, did. yes. I think Moish must be looking at him like, okay, big shot, you got a degree. What are you doing back here yelling at Manny, who's related to this one, who's married to that one? Go do something else. Don't uh, try to fix something that's not broken. Because in surely in Moish's eyes, They've been providing for their child. They've been doing well. And then here comes this young guy saying no. They call it the whippersnapper. Oh, is that what they call it? Yes, the whippersnapper. It's also funny. His big idea is a coffee machine. 
Well, at that time, that was big. What college did he go to? He went to a very good school. He went to college. It was too expensive. (laughs) The college was too expensive. It must be. He didn't go to City University. He went. That's right. He must have went away. He went away. Because he met Midge in Pennsylvania. That's right. Because she was at Bryn Mawr. So I don't know what school he went to. Did we not do our homework? Write us in. Let us know what college Joel went to because we're blanking on it. In her comic... Uh, show at this club she says to the audience to think about what fuels comedy oppression right lack of power uh, disappointment basically sadness that made happen in someone's life she then says now who the hell does that describe more than women and it shows that she's always been in a place of comedic relief because she's a female, she's been through so much, and these male comics making fun of her and putting her down, saying she can't be more basically than a housewife, she really rises to the occasion, uh, which is good, but at the same time, when she's done and she does this amazing set, the manager of the club says, you're never coming back, because all that's going to be remembered for him is that she put down his top four four, four male performers Performers, yes, comics. Who are his, as he says, his big money-making people. Um, And I think we're a bit taken aback, like, well, she just did amazing. She should be on that stage. It does not dimmer the magnitude of that moment. Susie and Midge are thrilled because they got paid. They got paid, and they finally felt that they uh, made big time. Rose and Abe now come back to New York. So the Maisels are trying to figure out their banking and their future. Rose and Abe come back thinking they figured out their future. Uh, and Rose but, seems disappointed. But there's a funny scene because actually when Abe comes in and says to Mitch, what have you been doing Like for this while they were away? And he says, I have eight minutes for you. And he waits eight minutes and she couldn't tell him the answer because she still didn't want to say what she was really doing. That's been a theme nonstop. She doesn't tell anyone close in her life what's going on. Imogene, her dad, uh, and Susie got her press in the newspaper, and Midge is mad about it, but you can't be mad. Susie's doing her job. That's right. Rose, though, seems upset to be back in New York. She gave up the dog, gave up Paris, but Abe, in a very, maybe he didn't realize it was romantic, beautiful gesture, at breakfast says to her, Remember, we have this appointment. I have Rose and Abe have this beautiful moment in the kitchen where Abe tells Rose that they're signed up to go dancing, dancing classes together, and that he's taking her to Columbia to sign up for art classes. Uh, he's going to make sure that she's able to audit these classes that would be great in her hopes of learning painting and art. And you see her face just in shock. That well, she lit up because he validates her feelings. The, the other part to this, everybody thought that she was a petulant child, that she went off to Paris and she left her husband. And my feeling is, is that she went off to Paris because she, she wanted to feel more important. It wasn't like she was a spoiled child. Even though they say you needed money to do this, and she might have had a little bit of money saved, and that's what she used when she went off to Paris. And now getting back to the kitchen scene, 
it shows that maybe it was good that they had that moment, that break, where they could have that romance once again in their lives. And it shows that they wanted to be together. They wanted to work at it. It just, I think, sums up why we find them so wonderful to see that they may fight and have uh, differing views on many things, but they figured it out, how to move forward together in a new location. Look how I did a 360 and brought it all back to the theme. Uh, and really, it's very sweet. And also, to bring Paris back into it, she says to Zelda, tonight I'm going to make Coco Vin. Because because he's having a guest come over. And, and Zelda almost plots because... She offered to help Zelda cook, and she's a horrible cook. But that's a whole nother episode. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Yes. I thought more, well, she's going to make French food because she misses Paris. Well, she does, but she still can't cook. She still can't cook. <laughs> Zelda still has to take care of the family. We would really love to know the background story to Zelda. I'm sure that's another episode. Hopefully that, that comes up because, my gosh, the things she must hear uh, and everything she does to take care of that family... Zelda, unsung hero of uh, the Weissman household. Give credit where credit's due. Thank you all for listening to season two. We are truly appreciative that you're tuning in. Please remember if you do enjoy our podcast to leave a review. Uh, this way we can get some traction. And thank you and good night. <laughs>